Here on Radio 4 now, Steve Punt turns super sleuth and tries to get to the bottom of the story of a most unusual royal relic. It's another case for Punt P.I. This is Punt's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, Tracy, got a regal mystery for you to unravel. But tread carefully. It's the curious case of the wax cylinder, the one and only in existence used to record Queen Victoria's voice. It's under lock and key somewhere. What's her message to her subjects, Punt? That's what we need to know. It's a delicate one, this, though. More delicate than ever. Message ends. It was a right royal assignment. Track down Victoria's voice. Messages from the monarch are familiar to us now and have been since 1923. On this day of memory and hope, it is also the birthday of good Queen Victoria. It is my but from before that, all we have is silence. Or so we thought. Until after more than a century, an allegedly royal recording emerged from the 1880s. But is it really Victoria? And if it is, what is she saying? Both of those questions are unanswered. My words will be very simple, but spoken from the heart. Could it be the first Queen's speech, a message to the Empire that Britannia rules the waves? Did you catch the words? Or could it be a polite request to stop naming pubs after her? Honourable and kind. Could it be a secret message? If you play it backwards, does it tell you that Victoria's dead? Most of all, though, where is the wax cylinder? Is it in Buckingham Palace, next to the CDs of Now That's What I Call National Anthems? To all of you on this Christmas day, I wish you all, my dear friends, a happy Christmas. I'd heard through the grapevine, in itself a rather outdated technology, that a man called Nigel Bewley at the British Library Sound Archive had been on the spot when wax met needle for the first time in a long, long while. I do remember the cylinder arriving. Um, I was in the room when it was transferred, and that was June 1991. And I remember that day in June when a representative of the Science Museum came up by appointment with it, um, and we transferred it for them. Um, but we were certainly the first people to, to hear the cylinder since the, the museum acquired it in 1929, because by then, the, the technology to play the cylinder was long since gone. With the playing technology obsolete by 1929, there were only two options. One was to keep watching Antiques Roadshow in the hope something would turn up. The other was to build something from scratch. Once this was done, it was time to get into the groove. We wanted to believe very firmly that this recording was of Queen Victoria. We played it and the atmosphere was very tense. The cylinder contained three separate bands, three separate recordings. One is virtually indecipherable without any restoration. One we could hear some whistling and that whistling is much more obvious after some restoration processes. And the other one was very noisy and it contained some speech. Right. Some, some, some female speech? After we did some filtration 
um, on the spot to reduce the surface noise, it was apparent that it was, that it was a woman. And sure enough, Queen Victoria was also a woman. So as a positive identification, it was a start. As for the whistling, maybe someone was summoning the corgis to come and be recorded too. I wanted to hear the thing for myself, but Nigel told me it's kept elsewhere. The cylinder is still under the care of the, the owners, uh, the Science Museum, so it will be in one of their storage areas. The Science Museum sits in the most Victorian of London districts, a stone's throw from the Albert Hall. It seemed an appropriate place to look for the cylinder. I started my search in the telecommunications gallery, hoping to find it somewhere, perhaps sitting on a velvet cushion among the telegraphs and gramophones. Alec has been telexing most of his correspondence for years. But I soon found myself in the future. The present model, with text editing and an electronic memory. Before I got too deeply into the fascinating world of Alec and his telex, I pulled myself away and into the crowds. The service that will let his microcomputer. What I need to do is find the man who knows. And that man is John Liffin, curator of communications. I swiftly learned that the cylinder is not on public display. To find it, we would have to go behind the scenes at the museum. Escorted by a security guard, he led me down staircases and along passageways and into the subterranean bowels of the building. Eventually, we arrived at our destination, a thick metal door opened with a special key. If Ocean's Eleven were into stealing Victorian wax cylinders, this is what they'd have to crack. Well, here we are at the strong room. The strong room would serve nicely as a nuclear bunker and indeed was used as a shelter during the war. Does Victoria's message contain state secrets? And in the cupboard is the graphophone cylinder. To find out, we carried the cylinder upstairs, still in its box, to the book-lined fellows room, where, with due ceremony, the box was opened. Ah, all this in white gloves coming out here. Are you the only person who can touch it? No, but I think I'm the only person to be touching it today. I'll, I'll take that on board. Gosh, now. It's very small, actually, isn't it? It's like an elongated loo roll, isn't I it? Was, I didn't want to say that, but I'm glad you've said that. Yes. It's... Uh, so it's a, it's a thin cardboard tube, no more than about 20 or so millimetres wide, diameter perhaps a bit more, and it's covered in a thin coating of black wax. So it's yes. pretty much it didn't look anything special, not even a gilt-edged toilet roll. And around it are sort of three sets of grooves, and on these grooves are what's been recorded on it. Three sets of grooves means three different recordings. The indecipherable one, the whistling one, and the woman's voice. I've brought up the file for the acquisition, and it's got the original offer, which went to the Victoria and Albert Museum by mistake, from... If the letter heading is magnificent, the Projectile and Engineering Company Limited, yes. New Road, London, South West 8, 16th of May, 1929. It's from, I can't read his first name, but surname is Morse. A man called Morse with a mysterious first name. Hang on. Some rival detective trying to muscle in. And it says, I have been deputed to take charge of dispose of a number of scientific articles of property of my father, Mr Sidney Morse. 
who was at one time a member of the Council of the Institution of Electrical Engineers. The most interesting of these is a graphophone, one of the first two or three imported from America, and my father demonstrated this to Queen Victoria in about the year 1888. There are also a few interesting records of about that date, but I should be glad to call and discuss the matter with you if you are interested. They were interested enough to take the cylinder and put it on a shelf for 60 years. They couldn't do much else since the papers reveal that they didn't accept the graphophone to play it on. These machines were made by Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, and a later letter in the file shows that one of the recording devices was taken by Sidney Morse up to Balmoral in 1888. But I only had Morse's word that the Queen was actually recorded. And is this the right cylinder anyway? It was time to listen. I've got the copy of the recording made by the National Sound Archive back in 1991, and uh, we can hear it now. We just head back from Cedar, the declicked version... Now, I'm no expert, but I'm confident that's not Queen Victoria. ...technology, I would say, and here it is. Um, it's a, a, a quite posh-sounding woman. Um, can't quite make out what she's saying. I'd, uh, do, can anyone make out what she's saying? The last words are, I've never forgotten. I've never forgotten. The sound quality may suggest that Victoria was being broadcast on longwave and picked up by someone standing under a bridge. But the noise is partly due to the track having been played a great many times, as if it was particularly interesting to people. So on balance, does the current keeper believe that it is or it isn't her? I, I, I have to say that my likelihood is that no, it isn't. Um, I wish that it was, but until we have better proof that it is, I would rather we err on the side of caution. Better proof. I suspected Tracy would agree. Was there any further evidence? And what about my other task, to decipher the message? I have never forgotten. I have never forgotten what? The Queen was 79 years old in 1888. That's a lot of things to have not forgotten. I turned to historian Kate Williams, Victoria's biographer, to shed some light on what might have been on her mind that year. 1888 was a terribly exciting year for Victoria because it followed so soon after her great golden jubilee in 1887. The country was just delighted with her. There was an outpouring of great passion for Queen Victoria. She had, of course, lost Albert in 1861, but the pain of his death was beginning to fade. But since the Golden Jubilee, the Queen had become devoted to her Indian servant, Abdul Karim, who was called the Munshi, who came over in 1887 as a waiter, and she became a passionate friend of his. He was a devoted companion. Quickly, they spent hours together. They'd sit in a, sit in a pavilion together, eating curry. He'd fan her... Tell I have never forgotten the onion bhajis, perhaps? My Indian takeaway often does. The munchie probably didn't. Victoria's fascination, however, wasn't shared by the younger generation. Her children couldn't bear him, but she housed him in a cottage in Balmoral with his family. So a combination of the friendship of the munchie and her golden jubilee made Victoria in 1888 a pretty happy lady.
So Victoria might have been quite amused when this recording took place. She did keep a diary, but according to Kate, her munchie-hating children destroyed chunks of it after her death. If she ever wrote down what went on that night in 1888, I couldn't find any trace of it. But to try and get a feel for the occasion, and how the words got into the wax, where better to go than a pavilion where the Queen might have got the curry in with the munchie, the fantastical Royal Pavilion in Brighton. Audiologist and wax cylinder collector Sarah Anglis felt this would be just the place to get the Victorian vibe. I live in Brighton and this is one of the sort of relics of Queen Victoria on my doorstep. It's Queen Victoria's bedroom. And what I think so wonderful about it is the excitement that you get when you think, ooh, there might be some of Queen Victoria's personal effects in here or any sort of trace of her. And actually the, a lot of it isn't her original stuff, but there's the odd thing like Queen Victoria's toilet out the back there. And I just find it so strange the way that, as people who are sort of interested in Queen Victoria, we sort of hang on to those little things, almost like saints' relics, as though somehow if we get to see a water closet, we're going to somehow know a little bit more about her. And um, I think with the recording, if indeed it is her, it's that feeling, but even more so, and it's the fact that you've suddenly got hold of something intangible about her, something that it doesn't survive in any other way. I find that magical today, and you, we can only imagine what that felt like 120 years ago when people were hearing their first sound recordings. Sarah had brought along a phonograph, and much though I wanted to invoke the spirit of Victoria, we couldn't really put it on the toilet. So in the end, we crouched on the carpet while Sarah assembled the machine. It's not the graphophone that went to Balmoral, but it's the same basic principle. This is an original Edison Standard phonograph, so this was the sort of thing that was like the sort of MP3 player of its day. This one is from 1904. Sarah played me some cylinders to show it in action, and then it was my turn to literally cut some wax. OK, so this is a blank. It's a cylinder without any grooves on it, so I can put it into the machine, put it in the horn. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to start it up, and this time... We're going to see the record head skimming along the cylinder. Mm. But as it's skimming along, if you talk into the horn, you're vibrating that record head and cutting a groove. Now, because it's all mechanical, there's no amplification, so you've really got to go for it. So you can't be sort of shy about it. You really have to talk at that sort of volume. Are you ready? Q Studio? Yeah. Right. If I cannot discover whose voice this is, I shall not be amused. I wondered what else to say, and realised why Edison himself had found this tricky. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. I learned that as a child. I have never forgotten. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're back in, in playback position now. In theory, unless I've just killed it. If I cannot discover whose voice this is, I shall not be amused. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. I learned that as a child, I have never forgotten. Do you know I sound strangely Victorian? That's... Uh, <laughs> I sound strangely authentic. Thank you. All the men sound like an old colonel on it. <laughs> and all the women sound like Queen Victoria. And I think that's what's so interesting, is that the process itself, a lot of what we think was something about these sort of plummy people is actually just an artefact of the recording process. Um, so have a listen, because here we've got this recording, which r right here in her very room, some people think may be the voice of Victoria. 
You, you know, you've got such a poor signal in all that noise. If I was being imaginative, I would actually say that I think I heard a Lancashire vowel in there. I'm just going to throw that in. But no, I don't see how you can deduce anything from that at all. I really don't. Sorry. Hey up, a Lancashire vowel? Surely not. But seeing the physical process of the recording, it's not surprising the voice sounds odd. Now I wanted to find out what we know about the day the recording was made. Did anyone else in the Royal Circle keep a diary or make any mention of the incident? I phoned the Buckingham Palace press office, where the assistant press secretary to the Queen told me he would inquire into the Royal Archives. In the meantime, I arranged to meet Penny Dyer, one of the country's leading voice coaches, who helped Helen Mirren in The Queen and Kate Blanchett in Elizabeth to speak as one should, as one portrays one. But before I played her the recording, how might Victoria have spoken? She was a small woman, wasn't she? And she had quite a short neck and quite a small mouth, which, of course, became the fashion. You look at colour plates, fashion colour plates, all the women are portrayed with small... You know, looking more and more like Victoria. And quite a short upper lip, which was definitely a regal feature of the time. You know, sort of bearing all of that in mind, one would imagine that the voice, particularly because of the constriction of the corsets and just the constriction of lifestyle... One would imagine, perhaps, that she has something that's actually quite um, light and maybe a little bit unsupported. But I may be completely wrong. We may discover, of course, that she has something that's really quite rich. Length in the sound would be very important as well because any sort of width of sound would have been considered vulgar because that's the sort of thing you hear and, and read the dialect for in Charles Dickens' books, don't you? Sam Weller. Yes. papers you know it was all about width and low ceilings and crowded spaces whereas of course she lived in large spaces and knew how she could use her voice to fill that space victoria had quite a lot of open space at her disposal half the world by this time by now i'd heard the recording quite a bit so i was interested to hear penny's first reaction Sounds like she says that first word. She says it's nonsense or something. Yeah. Nonsense. Just it, I think you have to freeform on this. Yes, I think you, you just have to sort of say what you hear. Mm. Nonsense. Going <laughs> to run something about running. I have never forgotten it. Yes. Yeah. I have never forgotten it. What you can hear, though, vocally, is it's, it's quite free, isn't it? Yes. It doesn't seem constricted. It seems like it's quite easy. You know, maybe the corsets were off as well. I mean, that's what you don't know, do you? But there's something about it that's quite melodic, which is lovely. And there's this part of me that goes, well, maybe our perception of Queen Victoria's voice, of course was absolutely nothing like it really was. Was Queen Victoria given to shouting nonsense down a horn? Probably not. But did such newfangled devices appeal to her to start with? Historian the Honourable Giles St Aubyn wrote Victoria a portrait. He's also a lieutenant of the Victorian Order. That's order, not recorder. And just the man to ask whether the Queen would have wanted to be an early adopter of the latest technology. 
Well, she was really rather remarkably interested in technology of various sorts. I think probably she got the interest from Prince Albert because he was really interested and knowledgeable too in science and mechanics and so on. Uh, I mean, that's shown by the fact that he really was the chief inspiration and organiser of the Great Exhibition of 1851. And in her widowhood, she spent much of her life sort of trying to keep up all the interests that he'd had. And it strikes me that if somebody had offered to show her this new invention of sound recording, I think she'd want to see or hear it. This makes sense, and what's more, Victoria had met the inventor Bell personally. She'd invited him to demonstrate the telephone for her a decade earlier and given it a ringing and commercially useful endorsement. So maybe Bell was hoping for the same reaction to his graphophone. But what did Giles St. Aubin make of his first hearing of the recording? My, my very first impression, of course, of, of uh, listening to it was that there is that bell-like clarity of that voice, which was, I believe, characteristic of her way of speaking. My major reservation was that the voice sounded to me like that of a much younger person. And I didn't notice, and I was perhaps partly expecting, a trace of German in it. I, I rather wonder. I've often heard Victoria had a trace of German in her accent, and if she did, it would be strong evidence against the recording being her. But digging around in the BBC archives, I found this interview with her last surviving grandchild, the late Princess Alice. I don't know why people pretend she had a, a German accent. She had a charming voice. Very light, uh, clear, very clear voice. She was gayer than... You know, the impression is that people have got a sort of grim idea of her. We're not amused. And you know, I'm so disappointed, I asked her, and she, she never said it. No. <laughs> it's disappointing, wasn't it? Princess Alice speaking in 1977 and scotching an urban myth about Victoria in the way that only someone who actually asked her can really do. It's always best to ask someone who was there, and appropriately at this point, the Assistant Press Secretary to the Queen emailed back. The Royal Archives had turned up something royally interesting. An excerpt from a letter by Victoria's Private Secretary, Sir Henry Ponsonby, writing from Balmoral to his wife on August the 29th, 1888. A man friend of Miss Bower came here yesterday with a graphophone. It is very ingenious. Werner, a member of the household of the Grand Duke of Hesse, son-in-law of Queen Victoria, spoke in German. Sir Fleetwood Edwards, assistant private secretary and keeper of the Privy Purse, whistled. And I laughed. My coachman's laugh. It was most extraordinary the clear way this was reproduced, as often as one liked. That is the clearest evidence yet that this is the right cylinder. We know there were three tracks and one of them contains whistling. But on that night of whistling keepers of the privy purse and all-round royal jollity, what of the crucial third track? The Queen said to me at dinner, I heard your hearty laugh this evening. This was six hours afterwards and Moore says it will keep for years. Her Majesty spoke into it. But we told Mr Morse he must not go round the country reproducing the Queen's words. 
Her Majesty spoke into it. Surely a fair indication that it is indeed Victoria. However, since I'm not Mr Morse, I decided I would go around the country to try and reproduce the Queen's words. I travelled to the city of Bath. Well, people bring recordings to me that nobody else has managed to play, and it's my job to play them. And met the top forensic audio engineer in the country, Adrian Tudnam. sorts of equipment here, and so if you can reach that box with a slightly sloping lid, right hand knob by the jack plug, two clicks anti-clockwise. I heard the word wonderful. Really? Yes. Now, whereabouts? Oh, yes, yes. Because, ah, oh, yes. Wonderful. Wonderful something. Yes, let's see if we can get the rest. Mmm. To a wonderful something. Da, da, da. Da, da. Yeah, there's two syllables after it. The emphasis was the interesting thing. Probably under those circumstances, you have to ask yourself, what would she have said? It might have been something like the first two lines of a poem, or perhaps a greeting to Mr Bell with a graphophone, or something on those lines, perhaps. Adrian's wonderful ear had connected another piece of the puzzle. I thought again of Sir Henry Ponsonby's letter. Her Majesty spoke into it, but we told Mr Morse he must not go round the country reproducing the Queen's words. And there, with a trail of dot-dot-dots, the extract stops. That's not the end of the sentence, which is very frustrating. I chased up the Queen's assistant press secretary again, but I was told I couldn't see the original document and that it would be unprecedented to record in the Royal Archives at Windsor. I was tempted to ask if it would be all right if I used a graphophone, but it would be rude to argue. The rest of the letter is apparently private. I don't know why. Maybe it gives away the secret of the munchies pilau rice. So I went back to historian Kate Williams and asked, from her knowledge of Victoria's life story, could she hazard a guess at the message? In my opinion, if she's saying, I have never forgotten it, I could never forget it, to me she would be talking about her golden jubilee, this incredible year that she thought she would never see. Victoria was never meant to be queen, born far from the throne. She was called Victoria. It was like it was really the equivalent of being called Kylie, Princess Kylie. It was a made-up name. And then here she was, on the throne, 50 years, nine children, succession secured. She had been an incredible triumph, and she wrote in her journal, Never, never can I forget this brilliant year, so full of marvellous kindness, loyalty and devotion, of so many millions, which I really could hardly have expected. That was the thing for me that she would never forget. It was apparent that it was a woman. Can you hear me? And always play the game. Nonsense. I, I rather wonder. Did you catch the words? Hmm. As I reported to Tracy, the case of Victoria's voice is a fascinating one. The Morse family kept this particular cylinder. It seems to have been played many times. Its tracks match perfectly with a description by a man who was there. But the message in the wax has waned. If I was forced to hazard a guess, and it is just a guess, I think it might be a personal message to Bell, who had installed Victoria's telephone. I think you can hear the phrase, was a wonderful gift to me, I have never forgotten. But then again, it could be nonsense, and I never said I was not amused. 
until the Royal Archives open, its case closed. Pumped P.I. was produced by Neil McCarthy, Tracy was played by Sean Baker and the reader was Sam Dale.